In 2012, director Tom Hooper gave the world a cinematic reimagining of one of the world's most passionate musicals. In 2021, we try a blend of straight bourbons that flies off store shelves. The film is Le Miserable. <laughs> the whiskey is smooth ambler contradiction. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey, Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. This week we are looking at the 2012 musical Les Miserables. <laughs> I like that you ended it with bleh. Les Miserables. Les Miserables. <laughs> As you all know, if you've, if you've ever listened to the Film and Whiskey Podcast before, you know that we live for the French titles and French names. Uh, 100%. I only wish that this had been directed by our friend Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. <laughs> but alas, it's Tom Hooper. And we're not even drinking a French-finished whiskey, Bob. What, what were you thinking? I really botched it today, man. I'm telling you. Yeah, you bungled it the way that Javert bungles the search for Jean Valjean. <laughs> so we are actually recording for the first time in about a month today. We took a nice little break. Uh, you know, a summer vacation of sorts. Now, all the episodes still released on time and on schedule, but we recorded a bunch ahead of time, took a few weeks off. Brad, it is good to officially be back in the studio today, man. Yeah, man. I feel like if you can hear it, I, I think that we are older, wiser. This month off has just given us a bit of life. Mm. We were missing before. That's right. And I'm excited for that, Robert. And now we are going to use that bit of life to talk about a musical that just bombards you with people's lives being ruined. Oh, dude. Like life has killed the dream I dreamed, Brad. <laughs> it really has, man. <laughs> All I got to say is living in France had to suck. Yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. Oof. Poor Victor Hugo. Yeah, so today we're looking at Les Miserables, which obviously was adapted from a huge uh, tome by <laughs> Victor Hugo. I have the book on my shelf. It is over a thousand pages long. Apparently, when have it was read it, I, I read the first 40 pages of it, and nice. it took me days and days to get through those 40 pages. And I said, you know what? I respect it. I appreciate it. I am never going to finish this book. So, uh, yeah, so I got like, you know, one whatever percent that is. Of the way through the book, but uh, I have some friends that have read the entire thing. It just seems like such a chore. It seems like a like a challenge of yourself to get through that thing. So, you know, I'm at the point where I'm like, I'd rather watch the movie. I, I really enjoy this musical. The musical came out in the 1980s as an adaptation of the Victor Hugo novel. And then this movie was a direct adaptation of that smash Broadway play. Brad, if we can start anywhere today. I guess I do want to kind of talk about the world of the musical here because we've done a few musicals on this podcast. This is the second one that we've done, which I would kind of consider an opera in, in that it is completely sung all the way through after Hamilton. And I really love the approach to this, Brad. I love that it is kind of wall to wall music. You know, we were talking right before we started recording that there are just a few instances in this movie where there is spoken dialogue or where someone kind of, you know, speaks, sings their line. And when you do get that break between what's sung and what's spoken, 
it really adds kind of a punch of emotional power to it, I think. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that like, I guess when you have like 99% of the film that is like genuinely sung, like it is a singing musical through and through it's fascinating to me those few moments when it's i think it's like hugh jackman has one or two of them and i think russell crowe has maybe one where they just speak their line and for whatever reason that break from the singing gives those lines a lot of like weight and impetus and honestly it gives crow and jackman a chance to shine for the fact that they are not traditionally singers they are actors right yeah well i mean jackman definitely has a theater background he was nominated for a tony for his work in the musical the boy from oz he's done adaptations of oklahoma like he has an incredible voice obviously if you've seen the greatest showman you know that he he has this incredible voice but you're right, Brad. I think it it gives both of those actors the opportunity to demonstrate the fact that they are first and foremost actors, you know, aside from the fact that Hugh Jackman has an incredible voice. And Brad, I already need to correct myself because I just realized this is not the second movie that we've done that has that kind of operatic feel or structure to it. It's the third movie we've done. And I have tried to put the other one out of my memory because it is the other oh, movie, man. the other movie by director Tom Hooper that we have done. And that is the abomination Cats. Yeah. I mean, Cats was one of the greatest movies we've ever done on this podcast. I also just wanted to point out that not only is Cats one of the greatest movies we've ever done on this podcast, you just said something nice about Greatest Showman without any reservation. Yeah, I know. That, and I think it's just because I was comparing it to cats in my mind, but <laughs> <laughs> that's probably it. And that actually takes me back to what I was trying to talk about earlier, which is the musical Les Mis as a musical. So it was originally kind of recorded by the two guys who made the musical as a concept album, like to get financing and to prove to people that they could do this as a show. And it came out, you know, on Broadway in the 1980s at the same time that Broadway was really being dominated by Andrew Lloyd Webber. And Brad, you know, having watched Cats and having seen musicals like Phantom of the Opera, I'm not a big Andrew Lloyd Webber fan. I just his musicals seem so incredibly dated and they are like so of their time. And what I really appreciate about Les Mis is, you know, if you watch a staging of it or videos of you know, prior stagings of it, the instrumentation is very 80s and there are ways that the characters have been played that seem very dated now. But I think there's something about this material. There's something about the way it's orchestrated, the melodies here. This seems like a much more timeless musical than something like Phantom of the Opera or Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, you know? Yeah, there, there's a massive difference, I feel like, here. And, and I feel like one of the big differences is that the content, like what is actually being sung about here, I don't know. It just feels like it has a lot more weight than something like Phantom of the Opera, right? Like Phantom of the Opera is just this creepy dude who falls in love with a girl because she sings really beautifully. And then she's like, oh, crap, you're really creepy. I want to get away from you. Right? Like. <laughs> Like, I just gave Brad Explains for Phantom of the yeah, Opera. there it is. I like Phantom of the Opera. I think the music is beautiful. But the content of Les Miserables is, I mean, it's out of this world, Bob. If there's any part of this movie I like, and I'll just spoil myself in saying there's a lot about this movie I don't like, 
But the things that I do like are the themes, the content, the like thrust of the movie, what story it is trying to tell. Mm. That is what really I think is a runaway hit in this movie. But the action, other parts of it, they're they're fine. Well, before we get too far down that trail, why don't we use this as a segue to talk about that story then? And we'll do that via our favorite segment, America's favorite segment, Brad Explains. This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, was this your first time seeing Les Mis? Uh, Actually, I just watched it for the first time. Honestly, it's probably about a year ago now. All right. So, Uh, but pretty recently. Yeah, yeah, recently. it. I mean, it came out when we were in college. All of our friends were just raving about this film when it came out. Yeah. Like, they loved it. Um, I feel like the public consensus has kind of turned on this movie since then. But, Bob, I don't know if you remember. I feel like people freaking adored this movie when it came out. Yeah, I think that, honestly, the Cats thing made people reevaluate Tom Hooper. So, uh, he's made, like, four major movies in the last decade. He did... The King's Speech, which won Best Picture, and it shouldn't have, and it won him Best Director. He followed it up with Les Mis, and people were kind of, you know, starting to get a little iffy. Then he made a movie called The Danish Girl, which was really kind of widely seen as, like, an Oscar-bait, eye-rolling kind of movie. And then he follows that up with Cats. And by the time we get to Cats, it's like how people felt about M. Night Shyamalan for a long time. (laughs) Like, after two or three bad movies in a row, people just kind of turned around and said, this guy was never any good. And they they reevaluate all his stuff in light of what he's recently done. And that's why I think Les Mis is such an interesting movie to talk about, Brad, because there's a lot of good here and there's a lot of stuff that people don't like. And I think do kind of tip you off a little bit to what's to come later in Tom Hooper's filmography. But I want to press pause on myself here. I'm I'm going down the rabbit hole here. Brad, you need to give us a breakdown of the plot of this movie. You have 60 seconds to do so. Are you ready to present our listeners with the plot of Les Mis? The movie Les Miserables is a film about a man named Jean Valjean who is a prisoner. He stole some bread and was sentenced to prison for like 10, 15 years. Um, As he is released from his bondage, he breaks his parole. He runs away to a convent. Uh, He eventually becomes a rich, wealthy um, businessman. There is a woman that works for him who is fired. And she tells him about her daughter um, as she is dying after being a prostitute for a while. She tells him of her daughter and asks him to care for her. Um, All the while, he is being hunted by this ruthless policeman named Javert. And by the end of the film, we have Jean Valjean taking care of Colette, the prostitute's daughter. Javert is trying to catch him. And they all get caught up in the French Revolution, which has all these young people who have noble ideas um, but lack of preparation kind of dooms them. They Time. mostly die. But Colette marries one of the young guys. Boom. <laughs> Boom. That was pretty good. That wasn't bad, man. For for a yeah. story that spans like 30-something years, you did a pretty good job there. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, Brad. So where do you want to go here? Uh, this is a movie that I really like a lot, and I, I kind of struggle with, do I like this movie Uh, For what it is, or do I like this movie because of what's kind of beneath the surface? And obviously, I don't even know if I could call it beneath the surface here. This movie is, 
you know, a kid that went to seminary's dream. Like this is one of the most well distilled presentations of the gospel that I've ever seen, especially on film. And it's, it's, you know, a big budget movie with real actors. It's not a Kirk Cameron movie. Like this is, you know, this checks every box, man. And so, yeah, this isn't courageous or fireproof. <laughs> no, <laughs> and, it's, and it's pretty good. And so I think that's why I'm like, oh, I love this movie. And I, I love the idea of using it as a sermon illustration or whatever. But behind that is like, all right, wh what kind of a movie is it? And I think that's where you come in, because it seems like you're going to be a little iffier on this movie than I am. So why don't we do this? Let's talk about like a few things you really, really liked about the movie, be it performances or shots or songs. And then we'll move into like more nitpicky stuff as we go. Yeah, I'm I'm totally down with that. I think that one of the things that this movie does really well is set up the stakes of like what's at play here in the lives of the people around them, right? Like from the very start, you understand that Jean Valjean has nothing to lose, that the world is out to get him in his mind. And to break from that mindset into I am a man saved by grace, by unmerited favor from this priest and, and you know, also by God, that like that grace transforms his life. You know the stakes that he has to cost him here, right? With Javert, you know that he is a man of order and dignity, that he is here to uphold the law, that the law is the only way to righteousness, that you have to follow it fully, otherwise you are damned forever. And so for him, the stakes of a man who receives grace and his life changes is like utterly massive and it causes him to kill himself a little over halfway through the movie. Um, for the young people, you see these ideals that they uphold, the people that they love and that they're trying to care for under a tyrannical regime. You see what their beliefs cost them in the end. Yeah. And so I, I think that this movie, what it does really, really well is it sets up the story of like what these individuals care about, what these groups care about, and how much they are willing to pay hmm. for those beliefs. Yeah. I mean, just just two quick observations on that. I am constantly reminded of, you know, way back in season one, we did an episode on the movie, The Tree of Life, and we talked a lot about the central theme of that movie being the conflict between the way of nature and the way of grace. And really nowhere else in literature is it is it uh, portrayed so well as with Jean Valjean and Javert. And the thing that I really liked watching the movie through this time is that they don't let Javert off the hook. But he's also not this kind of black and white villain that I think we sometimes think of him as. And even Valjean continually says to him, I don't hold anything against you. You're doing your duty. And for Javert, like that's everything, like following the letter of the law, being upright, doing your duty is exactly what you're supposed to do. And to him, that's what's earning him favor with God. And so when he sees Valjean thriving while breaking the law, like he can't comprehend that. And so he has to keep constructing this idea of no, Valjean is a bad person. He's a criminal. He'll forever be a criminal. And you're right, Brad, by the end of the film, when he finally fails to reconcile the fact that no, Valjean is a better man than I, he's a changed man even if he is a criminal. Uh, that's like the thing that causes Javert, you know, to, to kill himself. Yeah, I mean, in the end, what he realizes is 
in the end, he has a worldview. He has a way that he sees the world around him, and it is completely focused on you have to do the right things in order to achieve the right result. And if you do the wrong things, no matter, no amount of right things will make the right result. And so for him, he just can't comprehend this idea that Jean Valjean could be redeemed because he did the bad thing. And so in the end, he, he his worldview is incompatible with the life of Jean Valjean. And I, I think what I appreciate about the character of Javert is that he is intellectually honest, mm-hmm. right? Like he he follows his worldview all the way to the nth degree. And when he realizes that it can't work, Instead of giving it up, he follows it to the very grave. Hmm. And like, there's part of me that's really sad about that. But I think, you know, like if that happened in real life, which it has happened in real life, that is a sad thing. But for a character in a story, I, I think it's a beautiful way to illustrate how important beliefs are like the things that we the way we think about the world is so incredibly important and characters like javert illustrate that for us well so that leads me into the second thing i wanted to say which is that this time through the french revolution stuff really hit me harder than normal and i think it's because i've always kind of struggled with movies like this that portray, you know, a kind of a melodrama or like an individual's story set against the backdrop of like some huge historical event. So, you know, gone with the wind when you kind of parse out is is Scarlett O'Hara's arc as a character. Does that really have anything to do with the Civil War or is the Civil War just kind of this nice backdrop for the story? You know, the the soap opera that's being told. And for a long time, I've kind of been like, oh, you know what? Like Les Mis doesn't really get to that sort of revolutionary stuff until over halfway through the movie. You've already watched Valjean and Javert and this woman Fantine and they have their whole thing. And now all of a sudden we're supposed to care about these revolutionaries. But I think this time it really clicked for me that this movie all the way through is a movie about identities and like trying to figure out who you are. What are you going to be defined by? What are you going to stand for? And the French Revolution, I think, is a perfect backdrop for this because, you know, in the same way that Valjean and Javert are kind of having this big, like, cosmic conversation about what kind of people are we going to be? Are we going to be defined by grace? Are we going to be defined by the law? You have these young revolutionaries who are asking, what kind of people are we going to be like as Frenchmen? You know what I mean? Are we going to give into tyranny? Are we going to stand up and fight for what we know is the right thing to do and giving people their liberty? And I think that folding those themes of identity in like across the board really, really does a service to this material. Dude, that's sharp, man. Like it, like that plays out to every single character, like even like Eponine has a choice. Will I be a swindler? Like my parents. So her parents at every point in the movie get lower and lower on the social scale. And every time that happens, you see them turn to a different con, a different way to try to get ahead. And so for Eponine, she sees her love of her life fall away from her. Eddie Redmayne, I don't remember his real name. Eddie Redmayne doesn't love her. He loves Colette. And so she has a choice. Will I stay true to my love for him or will I be like my parents and just con my way into the next portion of life? 
And what does she do? She stays true to her beliefs and dies for them. Like that, bro, that is, that's good stuff, man. Well, thank you. you just, that's why they pay me the big bucks, man. All right, dude. I, I, we're like 23, 20 minutes in here. I think we're done. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to be out at this point. No, uh, I, Brad, I want to talk about the performances before we go to break here. So, you know, let's just start at the top. Hugh Jackman as Jean Valjean. Oh, no, no, no. It's Hugh Jackman. Yeah, that's right. As Jean Valjean. <laughs> so I guess I'll talk about this here. Hugh Jackman's singing voice in this movie is a prime example of the director Tom Hooper's decision to not do like a studio recording of these songs that, you know, is dubbed over and that they're lip syncing to. They actually recorded their voices live on set and they put a little earpiece in each of the actor's ears that was just playing a piano accompaniment. And so, you know, there are times when people are sharp, people are flat, people's vibrato is way off. And I think it's especially apparent with some of these people who are really good actors because, you know, in a lot of these songs, they're crying, they're sobbing. And when you're crying, it's obviously going to affect your pitch. Your vocal cords are going to be a little bit more constrained. And I think in a lot of ways, Hugh Jackman is a victim of that here. And yet at the same time, like I, I can understand what anyone might have to say about his singing voice here. But I still think it really, really works. I, I think Jackman is incredible in this movie. He gets nominated for an Oscar. Brad, I don't know. I, I, like, what are your thoughts on Jackman in particular? And then what are your thoughts also on does the acting get in the way of the singing sometimes? Well, specifically on Hugh Jackman, uh, Bob, I'm curious. Have you ever used like a shredder before? <laughs> like a paper shredder? I'm just I'm just checking. Have yeah. you ever used a paper oh, shredder yeah. before? Here's the thing. I'm like 100% sure that Hugh Jackman took his vocal cords out, put them through a paper shredder, and then put them back in his throat and sang this music. Oh, come on. I'm just being honest with you. I could not even come close to focusing on his acting performance for how horrifically bad his voice sounded in this movie. You hated it that much. I really did. And and I'll, I'm going to reference a uh, YouTube channel here that I think is phenomenal. It's called Sideways. Um, he really focuses on music in movies mm-hmm. and how it affects you and its quality, so on and so forth. He did a phenomenal video diving into the musical problems with this movie. Yeah. So if you want, go check that out. He'll talk a lot more about it. But suffice to say, Hugh Jackman prepared himself to act in this movie But like you said, they were not just acting. They were also singing on set. And so the preparations for acting that he did destroyed his voice. Yeah. And so for me, I I liked his story. I liked what was written for him. But God bless it, man. I could barely focus whenever he was singing in this movie. So, yeah, again, that gets me back to this kind of central problem of This is an inherent flaw in recording people's vocals live on the day, because if they're doing a really good, convincing acting job, then it's going to affect their singing. And then on the flip side, I think some of the people in this movie that really shine through vocally, you can kind of tell are not the best camera actors either. So, like, I don't mean to jump too far down the cast list here, but you mentioned the character of Eponine played by Samantha Barks. She actually played the character of Eponine. in, in the theater, I think on the West End at some point, and then won the role here. And her vocals are incredible. Her rendition of On My Own is great. 
And yet I couldn't quite buy her when she's supposed to be like sobbing in the rain because, you know, she she has like the kind of facial expression of someone that's crying. But you can tell she's not crying. And that's nothing against her. I think if that if she was doing that in a theater setting because you're sitting, you know, at minimum 30 feet away from her, it would look super convincing. But when Tom Hooper puts a camera six inches from your face, like you better be able to bring the goods in terms of being a camera actor. And so I think it's kind of a lose lose situation for these actors, Brad, because some of them are really good on camera, but their vocals suffer. And some of them are vocally incredible, but their acting performances suffer because of it. Right. And I think that's why you have somebody like Russell Crowe give this like dark, imposing, commanding performance where he's just this like, uh, he almost feels like a Darth Vader type figure, like slow moving, large, imposing, dark presence that overshadows everyone around him. But in the end, his singing isn't that great, but his acting performance is fine. And I think you see the same thing with Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman rips like he rips a hole open so that you can see his soul in this movie. And I think that's what you love about it so much, Bob. But because he does that, you're barely able to tell what he's singing half the time. Mm. Uh, The same thing happens with Anne Hathaway. She sings hands down the most famous song from this musical, but at times it's almost unintelligible because she's sobbing her eyes out, which is gives for a phenomenal screen performance but not the best vocal performance. And so I think that the problem with the filming it on set is that you literally get the worst of both worlds. You get bad acting performances, but phenomenal vocal performances from some actors and you get phenomenal acting performances, but terrible vocals from others. I think that's the, that's kind of the fun part about this though, is like, it's almost like you get to plot each person on a spectrum. You know what I mean? And it's like, You want to aim for the middle of I have pretty good vocals and I can do a pretty good job on screen. And I remember when when I watched this in the theater, the the person that stuck out to me the most was Eddie Redmayne because he was he was kind of just getting his career launched. He had just made this movie called uh, My Week with Marilyn, which was really good. And then he jumped into Les Mis. And again, does he have the best voice ever no you know this is not to get too technical but like his vibrato is not very natural you can tell he's like shaking his head to get that sort of vibration in his voice and he does it every time he sings but at the end of the day the result is his voice sounds lovely and his acting performance is is maybe the best one in the whole film yeah i mean when he is singing about the empty chairs and like all of his friends have died and he was the only one who survived because of jean valjean Oh, man, dude, that like that got me. Uh, That got me where it feels, you know. (laughs) And so for me, I I agree. I think that on the spectrum of like good acting on the left and good singing on the right, where like acting and singing are exclusive to one another, you can't do both well. I think that Eddie Redmayne knocked it out of the park at being average at both. (laughs) (laughs) Congrats, (laughs) Eddie. (laughs) Good job, Eddie. But like, honestly... (laughs) I feel like that's what this film needed. And it it also works because I feel like Eddie Redmayne is like the hinge of this movie. Like he connects the French Revolution stuff to the Colette, Javert, Jean Valjean stuff. So like he he really is the center of this film in a lot of different ways. And I, I think it works then that he was also kind of the center of that spectrum. So let me offer a quick, quick correction here. So the character's name is actually Cassette. 
Cassette? Cassette. No, was I saying Colette? Yeah, you were saying Colette, but that's- Oh, no, no, that's... no, I was saying Sasha Baron Cohen's <laughs> version. Yeah, I, I also loved it when he calls her Courgette at one point. That, that made me <laughs> yes. laugh out loud. And and I think part of the reason you're forgetting her name is because Cosette is kind of just a character. Like she, <laughs> talk about a thankless role. Like she has nothing to do. She's barely in the film. And yet at the same time, Amanda Seyfried has just a lovely voice. Like she, every time she was on screen, I was like, your character is so bland and I hate her, but I can't hold it against you because you're doing a great job here. So, I mean, just, you know, a quick shout out to Amanda Seyfried. Great, I, great bro, job. I don't know, man. Her vibrato is like painful to me. Oh my gosh. Brad, you. <laughs> okay. Go I'm on. I'm just being honest, man. It's, <laughs> it literally sounds like a small bird like pecking against my head. Brad, you are single handedly, you are single handedly <laughs> going to keep us from ever getting a big name guest on this show because you will have insulted <laughs> all of them. <laughs> anyway, I want to get your opinion on one thing before we go to break, Brad. And, you know, watching this movie kind of threw me back to a conversation we had when we were recording The Lion King, and we talked about Timon and Pumbaa as like a necessary comic relief because the movie was targeted to five-year-olds, but how I basically said, I kind of wish that they didn't have comic relief because I think that the emotional power of the movie would have been that much more powerful if they weren't undercutting it with like a farting warthog. But and, then you wouldn't have the song Hakuna Matata. Right. So we had a big debate about it. I don't, I'm just wondering, like, do I just not like comic relief at this point? Because every <laughs> time the, the Tenardiers were on screen, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen and Helena Bonham Carter, I was just like, do we have to do this again? Can we please just get back to the main story? And it's not to say that it's not toe tapping or that you don't kind of smile a little bit and, and pleasantly play along for three minutes until you go back to Valjean, but especially in this story, I just, I feel like the story would have been more powerful if they didn't have these like swindlers following them around singing their dumb song every 30 minutes. Yeah. I mean, I think that they would have been fine if they just kept them to cassette and her like introduction to the movie. Yeah. Right. Like you get cassette, you get that the innkeepers are bad people that swindle folks. And like the other problem is Master of the House is like, uh, it's a catchy song, like you said. But it goes on for a really long time. Oh, yeah. The introductory song is one of the most epic opening sequences of any movie all time. You're talking the like, Look Down song? Yeah, Look Down yeah. and the yep. ship coming in. Like, tell me a more epic opening to a movie. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Like, it's so freaking cool. I don't think that song was half as long as the Master of the House with Barrack Cohen and uh, uh, Bonham Carter. I think they just, they both have like double last names. That's interesting. I'm pretty so sure like, you just said Barrack Cohen, like Barracuda. <laughs> Ooh, Barracuda. Sasha Barracuda. <laughs> but like the song went, the point I'm trying to make is that song was like nine minutes long. Yeah. And I get that this is a two hour and 40 minute movie, but cut that song in half. Use them to introduce like Cassette's upbringing to know who she is as a person and then move on. Yep. Like maybe they come into the movie once or twice more, but they don't need to be in the movie as much as they are. And I, Bob, I'm with you 100%. They are in the movie way too much. And I, it's interesting. The big names in this movie, 
occupy the three most important roles of Fantine and Javert and Jean, Val- Jean Valjean, and then like two of the least important roles <laughs> of the Tenardiers or yeah. whatever you called them. Yeah. And I just think that's kind of like weird. And I wonder if the fact that it was two massive movie names is the reason they got so much screen time. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I'd have to go back and look at how much they get in the musical, but I think that they have that many, you know, reprises in the musical, too. I think it's just too much. All right, folks. Well, as promised, we talked about things we liked and then devolved very quickly into nitpicks. So I think we it's never time- talked about Russell Crowe, though. So well, like, let, that's a bonus. Let's save Russell Crowe for the second half of the show, because I think we both need a little bit of liquor before we talk about that. So let's hit pause here, Brad, and let's try this smooth ambler contradiction. What do you say? Let's get to it. So today we are checking out Smooth Ambler Contradiction. If I'm not mistaken, Brad, this is the first offering from the Smooth Ambler company that we've had on the show. I always kind of get them confused with High West, and I hate saying that because they they probably, I don't know if they get that a lot or not, but you never want to be confused with another company. But we've had a couple offerings from High West on this podcast, and all of which we really liked. Smooth Ambler has a pretty similar business model. They, they sourced a lot of whiskey for a long time, and now they're kind of blending whiskey that they've sourced with their own distillate. In looking up reviews of this particular bottle, The Contradiction, uh, they've been making it for, I don't know, six, seven, eight years now. And it looks like they are doing like the Bardstown bourbon thing where every year they're kind of blending in more and more of their own product. So I'm not entirely sure. Maybe at this point it's entirely their product. But at one point it was basically like, you know, a majority sourced product from MGP that they were then kind of like cutting their own product into. And the interesting thing about this product, Brad, the contradiction is that once they blended all of the whiskeys together, all the bourbons that they wanted, they then returned the blend back into the original barrels to age for a couple more months. So, you know, they tried to get it nice and married together. This is a really interesting whiskey. They make a barrel proof version of this, but the one that we are trying today is just the standard contradiction, which is 92 proof. Brad, I I mean, I don't think there's that much more to say here. It's a blend of straight bourbons. So we know that everything in here is bourbon. Everything in here is aged at least two years and it's kind of low proof. We're finally taking a break from the barrel proof stuff. And I, for one, am kind of happy about that. Bob, I'm going I'm to ask a question, and I want people to know that this question is not reflective of Smooth Ambler at all, or Bardstown or anyone else who does this model. But like, if you were running a distillery, and you started off with blended stuff, and everybody loved it, and then you slowly make more and more of your own product, wouldn't you just be terrified that like the product goes downhill? Yeah, that's a good question. And I you, think the, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think the way that a lot of distilleries like tackle that is 
they start working with a place like MGP to, you know, kind of do like a proprietary, like they know exactly what the mash bill is. They know exactly what kind of char the barrels are so that when you start making your own product, you start kind of copying that same thing or, you know, getting it at least really similar to that so that by the time it is completely your distillate, people don't notice the difference. Yeah, that that's just whenever I hear about companies doing that process of like, you know, over 10, 15 years slowly making it their own, I would just be terrified of like creating a brand that is like, you know, marketable and and has a specific flavor profile. Oh, yeah. And that changing. Listen, I made soup for dinner for my whole family tonight, and I've made this <laughs> soup probably like three times in the last, I don't know, six weeks. And I cannot get this recipe to be 100% the same every, no matter, like, even if I follow the recipe, it comes out tasting yeah. slightly different every time. So listen, man, like, if it was me and you doing this, I would be 100% terrified that, yeah. <laughs> that it wouldn't come out the same. Well, I, I hate to say it, but Bob, you just, you just uh, spoiled the announcement that we're starting our own distillery. <laughs> that, that is it. We're, we're doing it. That's right. All right, Brad, what, what are you picking up on the nose here, man? Uh, I am picking up sweet vanilla. I, I feel like as I'm nosing this, it's almost like a sugar cookie. Hmm. Um, and then mixed in with that is a little bit of like a light citrus. Like, I don't know if it's like lemon or lime, um, but there's something of a citrus note here that I, I actually kind of like. Uh, I'll give it an eight out of 10 on the nose. Wow. Yeah. See, I'm not getting a ton of that. This one really needed some time to open up for me. I had to leave it in my glass for quite a while. And once again, this is a sample that was sent to us by our friends Bourbon and Stuff. So we want to say thank you uh, to them for this sample. But also, you know, because of that, it needed a little bit more time to open up in the glass for me. Once it Bob, did. I'm, go ahead. I'm curious. When are they going to send us stuff? <laughs> we've gotten, we've gotten the bourbon them, i i really want some stuff <laughs> it's like on uh it's like on parks and rec ron swanson <laughs> yes. shops at food and stuff yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> so on the nose for me I, it was very herbal i think that was the thing that really stood out especially at the beginning really kind of green herb heavy lots of mint a little bit of dill um i got like some sagey kind of notes on this as well you're right brad after a while it did become sweeter and it gave off a lot of cola type notes in a way that reminded me of drinking like a rebel yell, which I, I really like because of those like cherry cola kind of notes. Um, it wasn't blowing me away though. I only gave it a six out of 10. Yeah. And as I get into the actual palette on this, I, I'm getting closer to where you're at. There's a really thin mouthfeel, which I would expect from, you know, this proof of whiskey. Um, there's a little bit of that vanilla, but I'm getting like a really strong lemon and like flowers kind of taste. It's very floral. It's very lemony. I'm going to out myself here and say it kind of tastes like lemon pledge a little mm, bit. Yikes. I'm going to give it a six out of 10 on the taste. It's not a bad taste. It's just a very specific taste. Yeah. So for me, the way that that kind of manifested was it was just super watery up front. Like I didn't have any flavors at all on the front of my palate. And it wasn't until it was kind of like towards the back of, if this makes sense, like the back middle of my palate that I really noticed anything. It was pretty rye mm -hmm. spice heavy and it had a lot of those cola notes on the back end. It kind of reminded me of those root beer barrel candies that you get. Yeah. And and that, and that was reminiscent of like when we tried the old overhaul, uh, 114 with Chris Blattner months and months ago. And I liked that. It's cool to have like root beer notes on this, but 
half of the tasting was non-existent and it wasn't until like the very end right before you went to swallow that you got anything on this i'm only going to give this a five out of ten on the taste brad yeah and as it finishes it uh, unfortunately bob it just kind of keeps getting worse um it's like a decently bitter finish with like i said it's lemon pledge and a little bit of oak and i guess i just don't want to think about like polishing my desk as i'm drinking whiskey (laughs) And so I'm only going to give it a four out of 10 on the finish. So the funny thing is, I actually thought the finish might have been the best part of this whole experience just because it's it's pretty nondescript, but it was pleasant. Like I had those cola notes left on my palate. The burn was gentle and mild. It was mouthwatering. Like it'd be easy to forget you were drinking whiskey, but it also nothing stood out in a harsh way. Nothing was bitter. So I actually kind of liked the finish especially because it's a lower proof whiskey, I gave the finish a seven out of 10 and that takes me to overall balance. I did not take any sort of like profound notes. It just says pretty good, not great seven out of 10. So that's kind of where I'm at with this. It's a nice low proof whiskey. It's nothing to write home about. Pretty good. Not great. Seven out of 10. Yeah, I see. I would say that this is decently unbalanced. There's a lot of promise on the nose that I liked that never really got delivered. Um, So for me, I'll give it a five out of 10 on balance. Um, It's fine, but it's not not anything that impresses. So that takes us to value. And it looks like Contradiction Bourbon is no longer sold in the state of Ohio. So I'm just going off of what I see online for some price listings on this. And it looks like it ranges between $29.99 on the low end and about $39.99 on the higher end. So we'll just call it, you know, we'll, we'll split the difference and call it $35. I think you're. if you see this on the shelf, you're more likely to find it at 29 than you are uh, 39. But just for the sake of argument, we'll say 35. Coming from a smaller outfit here, a non-distilling producer, or I guess, you know, they are distilling, but it's, you know, they, they take the time to blend it. They do that kind of second barreling. It is a little bit more labor intensive. I don't mind this being $35, Brad. It's not my favorite whiskey, but I also don't feel like when you take the amount of labor that's going into it into consideration... I don't think it's like overpriced. So I'm going to go ahead and give it a six out of 10 on value with the caveat. Like, I don't love this whiskey, but I think it's fairly priced. Yeah, I think that $35 is about $10 too much for this whiskey. Um, There are just so many phenomenal whiskeys you can get in the 28 to 32, $35 range that there might be a lot of work going into this, but it's not showing for much. And so I'm just going to give it a four out of 10 on value. It's not incredibly overpriced. Like there's a lot of people that with that amount of time and work they put into this might charge 40 or 50 bucks for it. So like, sure, 35 is fine, but eh, four out of 10. All right. That's taken me to a 31 out of 50. Brad, what are you coming to? Uh, Just a 27 out of 50. All right. So splitting the difference again, we're coming out to a 29 out of 50 or just a 58 out of 100. Brad, are you going to recommend this? I'm honestly not. I, I wouldn't recommend it even at the bar, buying a bottle. I I just don't think it's worth your time. I, I think that, I don't know, this might be a specific flavor that some people are looking for. Um, but I, in my experience, this is not something that the general public would really love. Yeah, I'm going to say I recommend trying it. I don't recommend buying a bottle. Like if you're in, if you're curious, if you've seen it on the shelf before, 
Try it at a bar. It probably won't cost you that much for a pour. It's a nice, easy sipper at a low proof, but definitely not worth buying a bottle. So Brad, that takes us back into talking about Les Miserables, and we have a few more things to say before we get out of here for the day. So what do you say? Let's talk about that thick crow. Right, that was Smooth Ambler Contradiction, a whiskey that did not get a stamp of approval from us. But Brad, you know who does get a stamp of approval all the time? Who's that, Robert? Russell freaking Crow. Yeah, dude. So Brad, I, I, I texted this to you, I think yesterday, as a joke. And then I thought more and more about it and realized this is actually a perfect uh, little segment for our podcast. This is the first time that I think, uh, if we can put it in a gentle, mild way, uh, thick Russell Crowe with two C's showed up in a movie. You know, he had, yeah, uh, he had kind of prided himself on being really, really fit for most of his career. And then after, you know, the big fallout after Cinderella Man and his kind of public uh, outbursts, he disappeared for a while. He came back, you know, a little more rotund. But uh, there was more to love of Russell Crowe. And honestly, Brad, like, I, I kind of like this later era Russell Crowe in a completely different way than I liked earlier Russell Crowe. Like, he seems much more willing to be in things that kind of poke fun at himself or at his kind of persona. Like, he was in this movie, I think, last year called Unhinged. And it was a movie about, like, he, he's an angry guy in a truck that has road rage and he's just, like, chasing a family around. And it's supposed to be, like, this crazy, schlocky B-movie. But he's having fun with it. And, like, I really... Honestly, for all the crap he gets in this movie, I really like him in this movie. He did a movie uh, just a couple years after this called The Nice Guys with Ryan Gosling, which is, uh, I mean, hilarious movie. And so, like, I-, I kind of like the idea of dividing Russell Crowe's career into Fit Crow and Thick Crow because they're two different versions of Russell Crowe, but I-, I love them equally. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Russell Crowe in, like, Gladiator is the peak of Thin Crow. He is just, he is the most athletic, like dominating persona that you can ever imagine on film. And that movie wins all the Oscars, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have him in something like this in some of his later movies. And you just have an older, uh, almost more quietly confident version of himself. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. I I think for me, the most confusing thing, you know, I came into this movie in, I don't know, 2019, 2020 is when I first saw it. So, you know, seven, eight years after it came out. And the one thing I knew about this movie, like the only thing I knew about the film Les Miserables is that Russell Crowe just blows, right? Like, that's all I ever heard about this movie was like, oh, it's the best movie ever, but Russell Crowe sucks. Russell Crowe sucks. He's the worst. He's terrible. He can't sing. He can't act. He's the worst thing that could happen to the cinema world in the 21st century. (laughs) Like, that's all I ever heard about him in this movie. Right. 
And so coming into it, I was ready to be like, oh, yeah, Russell Crowe's the worst. And then honestly, like, uh, so compared to some of the younger actors, I'm with you. His singing is not good compared to even Eddie Redmayne, who we both agreed, like, straddles that average line perfectly. So he's not even as good as Eddie Redmayne. But for me, I compare him to Hugh Jackman, right? It's like him versus Hugh. It's the young singers against each other. And so when I look at him opposed to Hugh Jackman, just in the range of singing, I think he does phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, I think he does a great job compared to Hugh Jackman. And honestly, like the character of Javert for me, as portrayed in the movie, I think he does a phenomenal job with the character. I think he acts it out perfectly. This inner struggle between law and chaos in his mind that like the way he carries himself is with utter precision and fortitude. And I just, I really like the performance by Russell Crowe in this movie. I get where people are coming from. He's not the best singer. He changes his styles from time to time. He he struggles with certain notes to hit, but overall the singing performance is passable And I think the acting performance is actually pretty decent. Yeah, totally agree. Brad, I am going to make one controversial statement. So later in this season, we are going to be watching Gladiator. And I have not watched that movie in years and years and years. I remember it being a good movie. Russell Crowe wins the Oscar for that movie. And so the next year, he does not win the Oscar for A Beautiful Mind, which I think is the better performance. And then he also doesn't, you know, he doesn't even get nominated for Cinderella Man, which I also think is a better performance. And so my controversial statement is like, yes, I know that that's his iconic role, Gladiator. I don't I don't even know if I think Russell Crowe is like giving that great of a performance in that movie because that character is so stoic. So I'm kind of excited to go back and watch that movie, knowing that that's the one that he won his Oscar for. Because I I can think of a handful of Russell Crowe performances that I'd put above that one for sure. Yeah, I would 100% put A Beautiful Mind up there. Uh, That's Honestly, that's probably one of my favorite movies. I love A Beautiful Mind. Um, Crazily enough, though, Gladiator's also up there. I I freaking love that movie. So, yeah, it'll be fun to go back to that. I also, Bob, love that your controversial statement literally doesn't have a single thing to do with Les Mis. No. Just get ahead of yourself. I you want to just put, put it, it out there, there so that people know it's coming. When when we watch the Gladiator episode, I will address past Bob and say, I was right all along <laughs> or you idiot. How could you think Russell Crowe was you know, not great in this movie? So we'll see what yeah. happens in a few weeks here. I mean, I, if we're getting into Gladiator right now, I think that the problem with uh, Russell Crowe's performance is that Joaquin Phoenix just gives one of the creepiest performances of all time in that movie. And so I, for me, he is the one who stands out for me when I think about gladiator. Well, Brad, we have clearly run out of things to say about Les Miserables because we just went on a gladiator (laughs) tangent here, but you know, there, listen, I've literally preached sermons addressing this material. Like I could go really deep on how explicitly Christian this movie is, how it really helps me as a Christian to see an example portrayed of someone whose life is radically changed by grace. And and Brad, you know, obviously I know you'd be willing to go down that trail with me here too, but we've said about all there is to say about the movie itself. And so Brad, it's time for us to give our final scores. 
You know, for for all the things that people lob at this movie, the decisions that Tom Hooper makes, and you know, we haven't even really talked about the cinematography. He Tom Hooper's known for doing this thing with his camera shots where he instead of putting people like in the upper third of a shot, he'll put them in the bottom third of a shot. So there's like an insane amount of headroom. There's a, there's a couple shots like that in this movie and it's like one of those aesthetic choices you just kind of roll your eyes at. I think the thing that bothered me most about the way the movie was edited was how there were just random scenes where it was edited like a Michael Bay action scene and and each shot was like half a second long and then you'd cut to the next shot and it became kind of disorienting. And after a while, like you, especially at the beginning of the movie, when Valjean just gets on parole and he's walking across the whole countryside, there are these incredible vistas that they don't even let them linger long enough on screen to make an impression. And so there's obvious flaws with the way this movie is put together. But I have to say, man, I would say the majority of the decisions that Hooper makes as a director work for me. I actually like the idea of letting these people sing live on the day. It's inherently flawed, yes, but ultimately way more emotionally impactful for me to let them have some bad notes in their voices, you know, in their performances, if it meant that the emotions rang true. And so, Brad, I'm going to give this movie an eight and a half out of ten. I really love it a lot. I think it works way more than most people do. I mean, I guess if the philosophy of the movie is that bad decisions and bad actions and activities don't have to result in punishment, then like, yeah, the theory of filming a musical on set and recording the voices on set would support that, that like even when you have some bad vocal performances, there is forgiveness to be had. Um, unfortunately, I would say most of the musical community does not have forgiveness for that, that they want the perfect singing performance, right? Um, for me, I'm able to get over a lot of the bad singing performances outside of Hugh Jackman. I I just think he's unlistenable (laughs) too. But for me, I think the thing that kind of helped me give a higher score to this movie was honestly about what you said about how every single character in this movie has a choice of identity, of beliefs, of whether or not they will follow those beliefs. It helped save the French Revolution side of things for me, because if I'm being honest, the first time I watched this movie, I was, I mean, 200% engrossed in the story of Javert and Jean Valjean and Fantine and what was going to happen to them. And I like, I was ready to give this movie a 10 out of freaking 10 for the first, I don't know, it's like an hour and 15 minutes that it's just the three of them is the focal point of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. And then we hit the intermission, which there's not an actual intermission, but it's the point where it switches and it's like 30 years later and you have Gavroche, the little boy, singing the song about the people and all that. From that point on, I just utterly lost interest in everybody in the movie that wasn't Javert or Jean Valjean. Didn't care about uh, Cassette, didn't care about Eddie Redmayne or his friend Angel Ross. I didn't care about any of the revolutionaries. Did, like, I just could give a rip about all that. I think that their stuff is so boring compared to the drama that is portrayed in the first half of the film. So, that being said, I think that they are redeemed a little bit in my mind. I was going to give this movie like a five and a half or a six. Oh my gosh. I'll give it a seven. Okay. Like the themes of this movie are beautiful. I I think that when you look at humanity's greatest flaw, 
It's the fact that we will do absolutely anything. We will scrap and claw and fight our way to get ahead of the person next to us, that there's just not a lot of human decency out there. And there's not a lot of grace when people make mistakes. Mm. And so for me, this message that God is a God of forgiveness, of grace that cares for us, that humans, when they connect to God, are able to show grace to their fellow man the way Jean Valjean does for Javert. Uh, There's just so much beauty in this message um, that I think I can overlook a lot of the flaws and give it a 7 out of 10. All right. Well, I'm happy that you brought it up that far. I didn't realize it was going to be that low to begin with. So that is bringing us out to an average of a 7.75 out of 10. But we want to know what you think. Do you like Les Mis? Do you hate Les Mis? Are you just not a fan of musicals? You can let us know by reaching out to us on social media, where you'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Or you can leave us a voicemail. Check us out on our website, which is anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey, and let your voice be heard. Let us know what you have to say. Next week, we're returning to the world of Pixar for the 1999 animated classic Toy Story 2. I cannot wait to talk about that movie. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. 